This device isn't a spaceship. It's a time machine. Goes backwards, forwards. It takes us to a place where we ache to go again. It's not called the wheel. It's called the carousel. It was the best time of our lives. Getting money was all we ever did. Hello and welcome to the Carousel Podcast. Today I have with me Ryan Zipgraf who is definitely the first leftist we've had on this pod. Um, he is a journalist. He writes for Compact, which is a, a very cool magazine that definitely sort of in a horseshoe sense connects the extremes of the left and the right, perhaps. Uh, Post-left, you might say. Um, you also write for Jacobin, which is a, definitely a left-wing publication. Um, you have a very cool substack called The Third Rail, and um, you have a history writing for the Chicago Reader and some other magazines. I have a history writing for the LA Weekly, so I think we probably have quite a bit of overlap. Um, I found you because you wrote a very cool article in Compact about the NFL, which I was also simultaneously kind of obsessing over, which is all of the identity politics or wokeism in the NFL, woke washing, which you call it in your article. Um, so we'll get to that. But uh, first of all, maybe we can just talk about history. So um, hi, Ryan. Hey, Isaac. How's it going? <laughs> it's good. It's good. Thank you for being here. Um, so we were just chatting before we started about your history with the, with the reader. So the reader is a weekly in Chicago. And for people who don't really understand, most big cities have one of these free root weeklies. Uh, in L.A., it's L.A. Weekly. In New York, it was the Village Voice, which I don't even know if that exists anymore. And in Chicago... It does. It's just online only. Yeah, okay. And in Chicago, it was the Reader. And growing up, I grew up in Chicago. The Reader was like a total state. You know, everybody... It was a very culturally strong publication. So um, why did you leave the Reader? And, and what was your experiences working there? Oh, man. Okay, so... I joined, uh, here's a funny story. I was working uh, for Tom Steyer in San Francisco back in 2014. And I came back to Chicago and um, I applied for a part-time social media job. And so I started just doing their Twitter posts and all that. And then I kind of came on full-time. I was officially their social media editor. Um and I was there three and a half years, and it was a wild ride even at that short time. Um, we were owned by the Chicago Sun-Times um, the first, I, I guess, three years I was there, shared a, shared a building with them. Um, and then uh, there was a lot of chaos um, but in 2018 um, in terms of yeah, and I don't know how you know how much we went you know the weeds here, but um, they had hired they'd uh, fired a friend of mine, um, the head editor Jake Maluli, 
while he was on his honeymoon and they hired this um uh sometimes a reporter to like take over um and he had an issue which many people considered racist uh it was of jb pritzker um on top of a field just like sitting on top of the field um a yard jockey and black ink everywhere and if you read the article it was supposed to be that jb pritzker was racist but everyone just saw the imagery and saw that a white guy had commissioned it and said it was racist. So it created this like um, huge media controversy. And um, so there was this panic inside the reader that, you know, um, we're too white, we're too racist. And so, um, you know, a lot of white people need to go. <laughs> and um that editor only lasted nine days. And uh, so then, I mean, this is kind of hilarious, but um, I was doing social media from a cider summit that the reader was sponsoring. And there was a press release about the fi- the editor being fired. And then so I, <laughs> I retweeted it with the official reader account saying ding dong, which is dead. And people went nuts. Um, I got in trouble. I got suspended uh, for a couple days. And the uh, editor of the Sun, Sun Times was saying, um, you know, you threatened our business. We could be sued and we don't have the money to cover this. And not, not only that, but there was actually um, an editor that, edited the piece and he put the ha- the tags like the seo tags to say like uh racist fascist and so they took that also as you know as an attack so right after that um be- the ad- so, so the publisher of the sun times said that you know we can't get more diverse because we're not hiring and the only way that um, we're going to get more diverse as if there's turnover. And so what happens the next day? Someone accuses me of sexual harassment. Oh, my God. Whoa. Yeah. So then that was, you know, sort of peak me, too. So I got suspended. And then um, while under an investigation, the, invest- the investigation didn't turn up anything, of course. And so I go back to work, but things were just so weird and awkward. Now... Was it just totally unfounded? Was there any, did you like ask the girl out or something? No, I, they wouldn't tell me who it was from. And, and they they couched it in these weird terms saying that you made a woman feel uncomfortable. (laughs) I mean, that could be almost anything. Yeah. literally, Literally anything. That could be absolutely anything. Yeah. Yeah. So a few days later, um, they said, you know, we investigated and turned up nothing. You can come back to work. And that was that. But nobody, you know, people at work just like treated me like, you know, they just wouldn't even look me in the eye anymore. It was weird. Uh, and then meanwhile, um, again, there was new management that came in, the owner of the Windy City Times. And she brought in Anne Elizabeth Moore, who, again, was this uh, Gen X punk. You know, she used to write for Punk Planet she became, you know, super woke, came in like day one saying, you know, we need more identity stuff. We need more on disabled people. 
Um, we want to do more puppet content because she, like <laughs> puppetry was a personal interest of her. And it was like she in Chicago, blended... though, there is a lot of puppet shit because like there's weird theater in Chicago. So actually growing up, I remember there was all kinds of puppet shit all the time. What was it called? Oh, like yeah, the puppet moon or something, something moon, red moon. There, there was like a bunch of shit like that. Yeah. yeah, there was also that puppet cart up in like Andersonville. Yeah, that would do like live puppet shows. Yeah, a lot of puppet shit happening in Chicago for some because it's all these like it's all this like B grade theater, you know. So yeah. it's all these like weird theater people. I grew up like in that. My parents are theater people. But anyway, sorry, keep going. So again, Anne Elizabeth Moore came in with this whole like you know we're we're moving to all woke all the time. You know, we're not going to put white guys on the cover of the reader anymore. Um, these theater plays, um, if it's about a certain identity group, only members of that identity group will be able to review it. Um, and a lot of people uh, uh, chafed under that, including a designer who was like, I think it's actually racist that you're saying we can't have white guys um on the cover anymore and i think it's offensive and so um yeah <laughs> a lot of the white guys uh ended up quitting including myself oh, okay so you quit you were just like I, i'm done with this yeah because um yeah. oh she also demoted me she said that it, i couldn't write anymore because i was i was doing social media but i was also blogging mm. Um, part-time and then she's like nope no more on day one when she came in she was like no more blogging for you just social media you were blogging on the reader or you were blogging per yeah. personally okay you were blogging for the reader I mean you were like no, yeah you have to just wow yeah man you hear this story so many times so um what what ended up all happening did the house of cards collapse eventually that's kind of what happened now a weekly but so same well, as woke take over and then it collapsed. Yeah. Um, I mean, they still exist, but almost everyone that was there only four years ago are totally gone. And there's been a bunch of management changes since then. I think they've had three editors in chief since then. And, um, you know, the, I mean, the thing is, is with that, when people like myself quit, it just became even uh, more woke and sort of their own bubble. And it was like, well, number one, they started uh, getting writers and freelancers that didn't have much experience, but they were of a certain identity group, uh, marginalized peoples, and the, the quality of the content went down a lot. And then a lot of the pieces were like about um, arts groups or um, nonprofits that were experiencing microaggressions and we're fighting back against management, you know, or like grad students. So, so much of the content was, was like, oh, we're being oppressed at the Museum of Contemporary Art. And, you know, here is the worker's take. Um, so they just, yeah, they just went uh, full-fledged uh, woke. And, um, and the problem is, I mean, the funny thing is, I, I've actually written about this a little bit, is that the thing about the reader is that this history of sort of the 60s counterculture. And, you know, for most of the last 40 years, they were sort of anti-authoritarian. They were very, um, you know, this is where you're going to read about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. And and that has um, 
that has changed. It's more about what's going on in activist circles. Um, and um, yeah, these pet PMC projects um, where they're all interrogating whiteness and um, I don't know, yelling at each other all the time. And it's became, it's become very authoritarian and very uh, against a lot of free speech. Right. Right. And, um, you know, again, some of what they did, like, you know, I mentioned that um, this editor, this news editor that just left Jim Daly had written this expose on uh, Perry Abbasi Mm, and his tweets. And it just like, it just strikes me that the reader of, of 40 years ago wouldn't have, would have published a piece on this just like, you know, all but random Twitter shit poster yeah. and about, you know, uh, decrying all his content as racist. That just wouldn't have happened. And so it's just like alternative weeklies don't really make sense anymore. What are they an alternative to? Right. Exactly. The, 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 right. They're just a little sister to the whole other thing. I mean, I mean, maybe they're a little more lefty, as you're saying. Maybe they're actually talking about labor abuses or something. But uh do you follow Perry? I don't. I don't really know too much about him. I just started following him because of all that, honestly. So, but do you know yeah. anything about him? Same. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't. I mean, I know that the Fraternal Order of Police is like the police union, and then there a lot of leftists and a lot of um, activists have, um, you know, fought against them, even though it is a bit of a contradiction because they are a, you know, a union, but they're a police union, you know, they're protecting cops. And um, so he is, was already kind of associated with the bad guys. But I, I think had it not been for that article, I mean, I noticed that his Twitter following went up like 5,000 followers since the article came out. So really it backfired. Right. Um, Yeah. I don't even like know what his beat is. I don't really understand. So I I can't really speak about it, but I um, I've seen him around. So it's funny that they went after him. Uh, Were they like trying, what is his actual job? Do you know? I think he was running, he's running for um, like legal counselor for the police board or something. I see. Okay. So some job like that. Okay. Yeah. It's a very minor position. Yeah. Wow. Um, so after all this, then this kind of collapse of the, of the reader, uh, you then moved to Atlanta. Uh, no, um, journalism is a bad game these days. And, uh, I married a woman who had a better career in academia. So Ah. I followed her to Mobile, Alabama for a couple of years. Um, she was a psychology professor and then uh, I followed her. She got a job at Emory. So I followed her here to Atlanta. Not for, not for my career. Yeah, it's for hers. No, hey, so we got to do these days, you know, yeah. us us guys who are outspoken. We got to attach ourselves to a, a woman who is less cancelable than, <laughs> than we are. Exactly. I see that uh, repeated. Um, my wife, unfortunately, is in the art world, though, so it's mm. not uh, enough to, you know. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, so in Atlanta and then Mobile. Wow. What was Mobile like? It was interesting. I mean, Mobile is a city that, you know, I've, I've lived in a lot of places that are very gentrified, including Atlanta and Mobile definitely isn't. 
And it does feel like it's in a bit of a time capsule. It does feel like at least 10 to 20 years behind. And um, the racial politics are crazy there. And I just came across, you know, I, I wrote a piece for uh, Jacobin about the segregated Mardi Gras. They just had Mardi Gras. Um, well, Fat Tuesday is uh, tomorrow, actually. Um, but they had this thing yesterday called Joe Kane Day. And on Joe Kane Day, Joe Kane sorry again this is getting into the weeds um he is the father of modern mardi gras in mobile he kind of brought it back after the civil war but the the part that doesn't really get talked about much is that he was a confederate sympathizer who did this march uh on mardi gras where he dressed up as uh, an indian like a cherokee and brought this band of Cherokees with him. And he said he was this um, uh, Cherokee chief that had beaten the Union Army. And he said that the Cherokees were the only people to actually beat the Union. So it was sort of a, a celebration of the Confederacy after the Confederacy had lost. But they still they still dress like white guys dress in, you know, the headdresses and the feathers. This happened yesterday, you know, and... Uh, Growing up in a very PC part of Atlanta, it's like it was. It's like jarring to see. Yeah, totally. Uh, no, I I went to law school at Tulane Law, so I experienced a little bit of that down in New Orleans, and and you see the real. Like I think that's the first time I ever. It's it's saw- like a bit of a, yeah. a a news. It's a what? It's a news hole. Yeah, because yeah. like I was there on on, on New Year's Eve. There was a mass shooting there and nobody nobody heard about it. It's just <laughs> yeah. it's just like Alabama has so little media. Yeah. There's no there's no weekly uh, daily paper for um an area of about 450,000 people. It's just like news doesn't escape there. Yeah. It's uh, a weird part. So I used to always drive to like the Florida Panhandle from New Orleans so I'd pass through um Biloxi which is like the first city you pass through going east and then you pass through Mobile. And I always remember Mobile, like, you know, there's a couple little buildings in the downtown and you're just like, you know, outside of the Bob Dylan song, you're just like, what, what is going on here? (laughs) Like, like, I always wanted to know, like, what would happen if I like got out of the car and like went and hung out in Mobile? It's like, I never, I never actually did, but I was always wondering, you know, because there's a little downtown area and like, I mean, there's probably, is it's a lot of oil probably, there's a there's a lot of extraction industries around for sure including um did you uh follow anything about uh africa town and the clotilde the uh, slave ship that they found a few years ago no no what was that so africa town is uh this place where these uh slaves settled after they were set free it was the last ship slave ship to come to america and, you know, this guy, Captain Meager, was smuggling them in, but um, to sell to some sort of rogue slave traders. But uh, they got caught, set free by the Union. And so they just basically built their own town um, north of Mobile. And, oh, man, it's one of the bleakest places in America really? I've ever been to. Oh, wow. Um, just extreme poverty. And and there's so there's factories everywhere because it's on the bay. Um, there 
is um, lumber, uh, uh, oil, chemicals everywhere. And cancer rates are super high there. And that's one of the things that, so in 2018, they did an expedition to find the slave ship, which had never been found and they found it. Um, and so the city has been working with these organizations to do like a tourist area. And so this summer, a, um, an Africa town heritage house and museum is opening, but people are going to like walk around this, the town and be like, where the hell am I? <laughs> there is just, there is just nothing there. Wow. That sounds like yeah. a good story. Is that anywhere near the blues highway? You know, like the, what's mm. the Delta highway 85 or something? 80. I'm not sure. That might be more Mississippi. Yeah, I think that's further further west. Yeah, that's one of my biggest regrets from being down there was not ever doing that blues highway that like goes up to Memphis. Um, I mean, it's funny that uh, I am not somebody who wrote a lot about racism, but down there it was hard to avoid. I mean, so I did. I've written a lot of pieces my time in Alabama about uh, the racial politics because it's still pretty crazy there. Yeah. I think like coming from where I came from, I never actually even the only time I've ever experienced actual like white on black racism, like the real thing was in New Orleans. That was the only time I've actually like really seen it. I mean, I also come from Evanston, Illinois, which is, you know, like, yeah, the only place in America that has reparations, like literally. (laughs) So I come from the total opposite. But I I, it is it was crazy to to actually for a northerner like me to see like real racism, you know, like not not like uh, projected racism, but like the true thing. It really does exist there. And it's it's very like uh, shocking when you when you really see it, because it's just so like unexpected. Yeah. And you can even see it when you're hanging out at Mardi Gras, the parades, there's like a black section of the parades and there's a white section of the parades. And, you know, you, you just walk a block and it, it looks completely different. And I know that, you know, in most cities, there's some sort of informal segregation and it's kind of patchwork. Yeah. But in Mobile, it's just way more pronounced. Totally. And it's the same thing in New Orleans. Like there's no attempt. Like it's, it's just like, everybody's like, nope, like you stay over there. We stay over here. Like don't mix. I one yep. time brought a, a black friend that I grew up with to a party during Mardi Gras. And it was actually two two kids I grew up with, one of whom gets reparations now <laughs> in Evanston, literally. But we went down there and we went to a party and they were dressed kind of like, not ghetto, but like kind of like, uh, you know, chains and stuff. And we went to a Mardi Gras party and the Mardi Gras party was in a big house uptown, New Orleans. So like in the nice area. And it was all kids in like, you know, vented like Bass Pro Shops gear, like, you know, like uh, Braden, like the white, the white people down there who are like, you know, in their own way, very trashy. And, uh, but like, you know, kind of wealthy. And um, we got like, we went in there and it was like the music stopped and we got kicked out because I was with these two black guys. It was unbelievable. And I like got really mad. I was like, what the fuck? Like, you know, we're here with friends. We're not just walking off the street. And they're like, yeah, sorry. There's like too many people here. And I was like, whoa, that is really crazy. Like I've never experienced actual, like real racism like that before. Uh, And it was very shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Living Gulf coast is sort of its own little region. And, and um, the politics are just very different. 
Yeah. And like you said, a news hole, it's like a little bit like you can't, uh, it's all going on without anybody really knowing what's happening down there. Yeah, I I was actually, um, one thing I didn't mention is I was sort of an Alabama correspondent for the Washington Post. Oh, yeah. And I would pitch things to them and never got anything, like nothing, even though like I had a really good investigation uh, I pitched that still hasn't been done. Uh, about this guy who tried to basically bribe um, a city councilman for like $100,000 to throw the election. Nobody was interested. Nobody gives a shit. It's so crazy. <laughs> yeah. That reminds me, did you, are you a New Yorker reader? Eh, I read an article once in a while. They just published a piece about like Eric Adams, who's the mayor of New York, his like corrupt buddy who's like one of these like street preacher kind of guys who drives a Rolls Royce. Oh yeah. yeah. I, I listened to a podcast about that a while back. Yeah, this guy sounded like a character. Yeah, yeah. And it's like and Adams defends him even though he's like been in jail many times and like obviously is like a totally corrupt guy. And I thought that that was, you know, it was nice that the New Yorker did that amid surely calls of racism that they were getting from everybody. Um, But anyway, I I think that this brings us to the before we talk about the NFL, this brings us to probably the larger point that you and I can talk about, which is. So as a leftist, where are you seeing, you know, all all these things you're talking about are they're clearly identity issues. So. um. Like, where are you at with all this stuff, right? Like, are you thinking that, I guess what I want to know is, like, um, the takeover of the reader, for example. Yeah. Why is that happening? And and what does that have to do with, because that's happening under the banner of leftism, right? Is it? Uh, yes and no. Yes and no. I mean... I mean, if you want to get into the the idea of, you know, the the whole Bernie Brigade has kind of fallen apart, but there used to be sort of two ideological poles, I mean, within um, sort of democratic socialism or or Bernie leftism or for whatever you want to call it, with uh, identitarianism versus a more uh, class-based approach. Yeah. Um, and I'm definitely more on the class-based approach. I, in fact, used to be in the uh, DSA Unity Caucus, which um, was accused of being racist. But that was, you know, uh, a part of the DSA that's like we need to unite, uh, think of ourselves as workers, and, and work together to get stuff like Medicare for All um, passed. And that um, we're obsessing too much with identity. So. Yeah, so you know, I had a little brief stint as a leftist. I voted for Bernie both times, so I'm not like some hard. Same, no. you know. I mean, I'm I'm not totally. I mean, now I am, but uh, economically speaking, I'm not like a hyper um, libertarian. Even you know, I, I think that. I just got so disgusted with the identity politics that it you know just pushed me all the way. But I went to a DSA meeting or and it was like a tenants' rights meeting. And here in LA, uh, this was many years ago, obviously. And because I was like, hey, maybe I should get involved. You know, I, I also, oh, this is funny. I wrote a piece like naming and shaming the worst landlords in LA for curbed. Mm. And 
the second it came out, five of them threatened to sue and they pulled down the piece. <laughs> wow. I know you can still find it outside of it. You can still find it on like archive, but um, anyway, so I was all mad and angry and, you know, like fuck the landlords. And, you know, I was definitely in that type of vein, but especially in LA, the landlords are just the absolute worst. So I went to this DSA meeting and the entire meeting was a, just subsumed by identity. They like we yeah. did not spend one second talking about economics, about organizing. It was all like, what language do you speak? What are your pronouns? Let's like put on the hear ed- headphones and make sure that every language is on the headphones. And you know, an hour and a half later, it was like the meeting was over. And that was kind of where I was like, okay, this is just totally, um, you know, just not. I, I don't know if it's a good use of time. It just seemed to me like this was not the right approach. So I, I guess like is the way that you see it that identity has just kind of gone too far within leftism or do you think that identity is used by the corporatocracy, whatever, intentionally to divide and conquer? Uh, maybe, maybe a little both. I mean, um, you know, you know, it's funny. I don't know how much you know about my history with uh, Compact, and um, I helped found a publication called The Bellows. Yeah, I was listening to you on, um, yeah, a podcast talk about that a little bit. But yeah, I know a little bit about it. Yeah. And so, like, part of my reason for starting that publication in the first place was that I felt like a lot of leftist movements and a lot of... Um, leftist media had trouble speaking out against the excesses of the identitarian camp. But um, I didn't want, you know, what a lot of people call anti-wokeness to like define the political project. Cause you know, my stance this whole time has never been to pretend that uh, racism and uh, sexism and things like that don't exist and aren't a problem, but it, you know, it does get way over uh, emphasized and it obscures the greater class project and trying to find that right balance, you know, I don't, I, I don't think I have the answer to that, but um, it's, it's trying to find a middle point because I feel like, you know, with a lot of the stuff, identity, you're either for it or you're against it, you know, um, and, and the internet tends to reward extremes. So how, how do you, how do you negotiate that? Well, so how do you negotiate the, to me, it's just like, who are the people right now that are the labor people, right? Because you write a lot about labor. So in your NFL article, your lens to seeing that is look at all the, literally on the field, it says end racism. (laughs) You know, we have yeah. end racism written on the field. But what is Goodell, the the um, guy who runs the NFL, what is he actually doing? He's extending the season. So yes. it's a kind of perfect lens for seeing the truth about labor versus identity because he's painting it with all this lip service. Every corporation is completely on board with this because it doesn't actually, there's no sacrifice, right? Uh, and... You know, did you see the graph of like the mentions of racism in the media? Media after uh, 
after Occupy Wall Street. It's like it dips. And then after Occupy Wall Street, like 2011, the number of like mentions of racism in the media is like skyrockets, you know, which I view as people are like, oh, come on. It's not that simple. I view that as uh, corporate PR dollars dormant sitting there waiting to be used. When Occupy Wall Street happens, they get triggered. And then they're like, what do we do? We sponsor the NAACP and it becomes this whole cloudy race thing because it's perfect divide and conquer. So in the NFL context, you're saying that uh, they they do this identity stuff to kind of. I don't know if it's to cover it, but they it just it's hip- or at least to a, at yeah, least so. to appease a, a, um, a group of people. I mean, there's sort of been a moral panic about these identity issues uh, for years and uh, corporations feel like they have to respond because a lot of the professional managerial class is saying, you know, saying we have to do something well to allow organized labor to operate more freely. um, Yeah. It would, it would cost your company uh, money and time, but to put black lives matters, uh, you know, in your Instagram account or on the field doesn't really cost you a thing. And there's no, there's no policy in that, you know, um, it cracks me up. I, I live a few blocks from this, um, this black church and the, 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 the house next to him has a sign that said white silence is violence and black lives matters and all this, you know, every sign imaginable. Well, there's a guy, there's a black guy that's been sleeping right next to him on the ground is like a homeless guy. And it's just funny walking by seeing a homeless guy. And then the sign that, you know, it, it is so disconnected besides, you know, this vague, uh, we're going to defund the police. Other, other than that, you know, so much of this identity stuff is just about recognition. Um, it's about celebrating diversity, whatever the fuck that means. And so, um, yeah, they can, they can continue to do what they want to do while just making these vague gestures towards social change. Right. Well, and look at California. It's every year it's gotten more progressive. It's gotten more unequal. And, And so it just kind of raises the question, isn't this all, I mean, neoliberalism is leftism in a way, right? So it's like, in a um, way? Okay, go on. <laughs> I mean, neoliberalism, it's liberalism. I mean, it, it's certainly about individual rights, right? I mean, it's like they want you okay. to, the neoliberal uh, project wants you to, your identity to be the things that you click on in your home by yourself, and that that identity should be whatever you want it to be, right? Uh, and even better if it, you spend a lot of money on <laughs> even better if your identity means that you work really hard, you know, all day for a corporation and then spend all your money on drugs or on whatever, you know, like uh, pharmaceuticals, whatever it is. And that, that's really what they want people to be. The neoliberal kind of like vision is that. So when I'm looking at the world, when I'm looking at like the people who are part of that versus the people who are not part of that, I think for me, it's inevitable that the, lower class of today or the working class of today aren't they pretty much trump supporters i mean like isn't that basically who is the corpus of what used to be leftism today 
Well, first of all, I would push back a little bit on saying that um, these are all neoliberal tendencies. I would say a lot of it's like individualism, um, something that is, you know, been in the American DNA for a long time. And I would also say as our lives have become more atomized and I feel like there's been a death of localism yeah um for the for the past you know two generations and that you know um where people used to be like okay identify with this part of chicago or a chicagoan or something like that um as we've all you know become the same person online um well how do you celebrate your own uniqueness and how do you celebrate your identity well oh i'm the same everybody with black skin or white skin or is gay, we all are a community. We all, even though I don't know who you are and we, you know, we, you may live 3000 miles away. Um, we have this commonality and we're so we're part of a community, even though if you look at what actually would make a community, it, it really makes no sense, but it's the way that we've adapted to all of the, these cultural and societal changes. Right. And it, no, totally. And it's, it's like death of localism, but so do you not see the death of localism as like a global liberal project? I don't know if it, I would, I don't know if I call it a liberal project. I think a lot of it, you know, is sort of just uh, a reflection of the changes in production in terms of um, things going from, you know, where you live in a post-industrial society and 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 uh, the knowledge economy is what really drives America, and that happens through the internet. That happens in places where you know we're seeing each other less and less. You know, you and I uh, have never met. We're talking, um, you know, on this device. Um, well, the effect of 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 sort of the flattening of of the way we interact and the way we work has made it so that that um we we look for a, a sense of identity and belonging yeah. in what in whatever we can find and i think that it, it's just identifying as lgbtq or uh a white supremacist or whatever is just like a way to feel like you are grounded in something or a part of a group because otherwise we're very individualized but why does then the global regime hate nationalism but love blackness or gayness well i mean i think that or, or why does it hate whiteness yeah why does it hate whiteness i mean so i think that like I mean, and partly it's for good reasons. This is, is partly because um, there has been a history of white supremacy, you know, in the West and throughout the world. Um, there has been a history of, uh, of, of, of women and gay people being oppressed. And so there's been such a disruption in our society, like politically. And so, you know, with the internet and sort of the loose, of information we're learning people are learning more about the history of this country and country imperialism and part of it is a justified reaction to it 
But instead of trying to figure out a better way to organize society, it's just sort of like a an overcorrection and like a, you know, a, a kind of a, a Quentin Tarantino universe where, you know, it's all about getting revenges for injustices of the past. Yeah. And so you you kick someone's ass because they represent um, that the oppressors. I mean, that's sort of what a lot of liberalism is these days is um, trying to punch up, so to speak, at what they view as the oppressor. Right. Well, and I, I think it's a lot sense. because I, I think the, the reason for that is because there's an absence of um, roots. So there's no, you know, there's no roots to help you identify. This is me. This is who I am. This is my, my historical fight. You know, these are my historical enemies uh, or these are my historical friends. And like, this is who I am. So they have to create, as you say, this great Tarantino kind of alternate history where we have these Voldemort bad guys that are created and everybody has to agree that like, oh yeah, no, this this guy was evil, this guy was evil. And what is the religion of the left? Or, you know, it's again, I think what's great about talking to you is so many people like me, when we say the left, we actually don't mean the left. Like yes. we don't mean you, you know, we don't mean people like you. We mean this global corporate monster, you know, this Leviathan that is, you know, outsourced all the jobs, wants endless free labor from immigration. You know, we're talking about this corporate neoliberal thing, which is not really leftist at all. Um, but that thing uh, has to have a religion of some kind, right? I mean, it has to have mm -hmm. some kind of um, people are dumb, you know, people are very stupid and they need things to cling to of good and evil. And that's why you hear this refrain over and over again of right side of history, because that's like all they have. They have no roots. They have no like, oh, these are our people. We want to promote our people. All they have is this notion of, well, the purpose of my life is to be on the right side of history. Yeah. And I think that, you know, um, as a leftist, what we, who would we want to target target is rich people and not just people systems that create um, the vast inequality that keeps on getting worse instead of whiteness, which is something vague and isn't tied to a single institution. And like, what does it mean to like kill whiteness? I don't, I don't know what that means, but to, um, to, change institutions and to redistribute wealth is something substantial and something that we can actually do. So yeah, of course, these corporations uh, and these political leaders like, oh, yeah, let's go after whiteness, because what, you know, what is that going to change in terms of the status quo, yeah. except for, you know, in the NFL, uh, you know, having these special ceremonies um, or commercials where, you know, there's more people of marginalized identities than ever. So tell us a little bit about your NFL piece. It's titled, uh, this is not your father, grandfather's NFL. Yeah. 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 It wasn't my title idea, but. Um, this is for compact. So yeah. Tell us about your thesis yeah. and, and why you decided to write that. So I, funny enough, um, I used to be a sports writer. In oh, fact. Really? Oh, that's cool. Do you remember the. Do you remember the Chicago Tribune had this special edition called the Red Eye? Yeah. Oh, totally. Yes. I picked it was the free one in the morning, right? Yep. 
Yeah, that was great. I used to be their fantasy sports writer. Oh, cool, man. That's awesome. I I was Dr. Fantasy, believe it or not. Oh, I think I remember that. I, I used to always pick those things up. I always was carrying those around. Yeah. Yeah, I also used to write like tech and gaming stuff for them. I used to be like their video game reviewer. Oh, cool. Um, but anyway, um, I, so I used to pay attention to the NFL a lot. And then um, I got married. I got older. My wife is in sports. And so I kind of fell off the wagon the last few years. But this year, um, she's from Philly. I've spent a lot of time in Philly, and I kind of got into it um, with the Eagles. And then I had, because I'd been out of her for years, I, I feel like last I was paying attention, we'd had all of this fight during the Trump years on the NFL. Like Trump made it a big culture war issue, you know, that, that basically the NFL was getting too lib and that Colin Kaepernick was out of control and he's respect the flag. And, you know, a lot of liberals were happy to play along with that. And so there was this huge fight over it. And at the time, the NFL was still sticking to its pretty conservative guns or at least like apolitical, like, you know, we're going to kind of stay out of it. And we're just going to have this silent thing where Colin Kaepernick is not going to get picked up by any NFL team. And then, you know, I check in a few years later and, and things had changed so much um, that it really struck me. And that was part of the reason for this piece. So how have they changed? Mm. So I think the most shocking thing to me was um the sports gambling thing and that i feel like that really snuck up on me because you know when i grew up uh you know and i'm 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 an old dude but i remember when pete rose got banned from baseball for gambling on his i mean on his own team but like it was this you know code in professional sports that you don't gamble whatsoever and, you know, I mentioned this in this piece, but there was talk for a long time about um, an NFL team eventually coming to Las Vegas. But they're like, that is where, you know, sports gambling goes on. We don't even want to be associated with that. So they held up a team going to Las Vegas for a, for decades. Um, but, you know, after this, uh, what was it, 2017, 2018 yeah, uh, ruling? Yeah, Murphy, sort of- Murphy versus NCAA 2017. Yeah, it just it just opened the floodgates. And, it, you know, I guess it was maybe a little bit after, um, you know, we really liberalized marijuana laws. It was like sports gambling, gambling, boom. Um, it was just like a light switch and it's really opened up. And the NFL, like, you know, in, in a few years, it's like a feature of their broadcast. I mean, because part of the deal with them is that young people don't care much about professional sports anymore. They're watching video games. They're just, you know, sifting through their TikTok feeds all day. And so professional sports viewership is declining. Well, uh, what's a way to get people more interested? You know, have their money involved, have a chance (laughs) of winning. So to me, I think part of it is strategic for them because they're trying to, you know, cultivate this audience who's addicted to sports gambling. So do you know what that case was? Do you like know why it's NCAA or like anything about that? I'd have to look. I'd have to have a refresher. I can't think of it offhand. I should have looked it up beforehand. But the I'm New sure. York Times did a really good series on this whole thing. They did like a, I want to say a three-part series uh, late last year, kind of describing um, how a lot of these dominoes fell. Like Chris Christie is involved. Um, all of this uh, big money lobbying 
uh, coming in from all of these gambling interests. Um, there's a piece, honestly, I want to write, and I might write it for Jacobin about Bally's. Um, you know, the, the casino chain plus, I guess, fitness. Um, oh, is that the same? But, I didn't realize that was the same thing. But I, I remember people used to always talk about Bally's in Vegas, but is that even still there? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. And um, they're opening a casino in Chicago here in the next couple of years. And it's just a huge turnaround there, too, because Bally's was sort of outlaw. It was uh, associated with the mob. And they were kind of banned in Chicago. And so for them, all of a sudden, 50 years later, to be opening a casino is quite a change. So that's a piece I want to write in the future. So you're so you're saying that the these gambling interests have really influenced the NFL. Yes. There's been a lot, a lot of lobbying. And also I again I think it's partly a way to get young people interested in sports again, in spectator sports, because there's all this content all these distractions and, you know, the NFL at the end of the day is just another piece of content, you know, that, that fights for people's eyeballs. So um, opening up gambling is just a way to get people invested in caring about games again. Yeah. Then there's right. They were hemorrhaging, you know, I'm in advertising. I did a campaign for the NFL that was all about, they were hemorrhaging like their younger fans, like their, their younger fans love fantasy, but they don't watch the games. So, like, maybe this is a big way to get those people back involved. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a real crisis, especially in, like, baseball and hockey. Like, no one under 40 is watching that. Yeah. So, but then you also have a lot of this stuff in here. I mean, I think this was the most noticeable part is, so the gambling is a very good point. Now the the Raiders are an NFL team, which you were saying really was a big no-no. They were trying to avoid that, and then now suddenly – that exists. Yep. Um, because it's in and, and in New Orleans, they have the Caesars Dome, the Caesars Palace. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, right, right. And so, but a lot of the piece is also about um so you have this this uh passage here where you're talking about Goodell. You're saying he, he heard the butcher knives unsheathing and did what most highly paid CEOs do. He bowed to market forces. During the George Floyd protests of 2020, many of the game stars supported the demonstrations on social media. Soon the league launched a $250 million campaign with the stated goal of ending racism, a slogan that has been stamped on the back of players' helmets and in the end zones. But the NFL's showy insistence that Black Lives Matter conflicts with its 2021 labor agreement, that extended the regular season to 17 games to raise more revenue over the objections of many players who had put themselves at increased injury risk. Shit dumb as hell, tweeted Saints running back, back Alvin Kamara. The result has been jarring. Uh, and then you say that injuries are up, and uh, which of course they are. And you talk about DeMar Hamlin yeah. for a second. So I, I'm a little confused there because it, you're saying that, and this is like actually a big issue that i take with a lot of this discourse you're saying that okay that um the race stuff is goodell bowing to market forces is that what you're saying yeah you're saying he bowed to market forces yeah because i mean i think that a lot of the old guard of 
you know, the NFL's core audience had been, you know, um, a lot of white conservative suburbanites. In fact, in Chicago, um, they just, the Bears just bought uh, land in Arlington Heights, like a suburb. And they're moving the Bears. And that follows, you know, there's more teams doing that. I mean, here in Atlanta, the Braves moved to the suburbs. Yeah, and then because that, they moved the, the Niners to yep. – although I will say Soldier Field sucks. <laughs> I was just there. I used to, li- I used to live near it, and, yeah. and I love the history, and I love the – like. I, 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 I like it, but it has – it's definitely, you know, it definitely is a bit ragged. It's sure. cool inside. I mean, the columns thing is cool, but but getting there is like it might as well be in the suburbs because it's impossible. Well, I, used, I used to walk. Yeah, well, so you're, you're not like a problem for me. One percent of people who can walk there, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Uh, shit. What was I saying? No, you were saying they're moving a lot of the stadiums to the suburbs. Oh, right, because yeah. that is a lot of the core of like the NFL's most hardcore fans. I mean, I used to go to Bears tailgates. And almost everybody would be from the suburbs, like a lot of like, uh, you know, middle aged, um, you know, white guys from from the exurbs. And so uh, a lot of teams, I mean, partly because of real estate costs and also because they can extract money from these suburbs to help build them stadiums, because a lot of cities have wised up to it kind of being a scam to use all this public money for stadiums. So that's part of it. But I think also part of it is that um, it was seen as like their core market. But a lot of corporations um, are trying to market to, you know, middle-class and upper middle-class people with money. And, you know, a a lot of, a lot of this group cares about, you know, uh, racial, these certain racial uh, politics or wokeness. And there is this idea that we're, we want to reach, this diverse group we want to reach these you know uh growing groups of latinos and black people and 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 other demographic groups so it's sort of an attempt to you know expand their shrinking audience yeah see like that's the part that is not so woke washing as you're saying is it i i think a lot of people uh rock themselves not you but people some people uh tell themselves that oh it's about capitalism you know the the reason Mm -hmm. why we see woke everything suddenly is a capitalist reason right um and you know nfl is having this campaign that says football is gay which is yeah which is done by 72 and sunny which is an agency that i actually used to work for um But that's not why they're not doing it. Woke, the woke takeover of advertising is not because they're, they think it's going to make them more money, right? There's a hundred million Trump supporters in the country, a hundred million. You know, I mean, like if they're actually sitting there drawing out, you know, if they're really like, oh, well, if we, you know, if we do the numbers here and here and here, like we have this idea that inside these agencies or inside these marketing organizations, they're like doing the numbers and they're like, oh, well, if we can get this many more Latinos, it doesn't matter if we alienate 100 million Trump supporters, right? Okay, but what's what's the average, what's the average income of Trump supporters compared to Biden supporters? I don't know, but but I'm saying calculus is not what's actually happening. Nobody's like sitting there inside these companies being like, 
oh, well, if we completely embrace transgenderism, which is deeply unpopular with everybody, it, then we're going to make more money. That's not why that's just not actually happening. They, like inside the company, they're not there's no like accountant who's like crunching those numbers. Well, yeah, I'm not saying it's like necessarily just like accounting, but they are trying to reach. You know, uh, if you worked in advertising, I mean, it's not just it's not just reaching a certain demographic of age. It's also of a certain income. And a lot of this movement is among the middle classes and upper middle classes. Yeah. I mean, a lot of Trump supporters are working class and don't have a lot of money where a lot of advertiser, which is a lot of what this programming is built on, is chasing a very elite demographic most of the time. Yeah, I mean, they definitely, I, I don't know, think they're chasing it, right? I think that they are. It. You know, I mean, that that's what it is. It's the, the, the systems that create this stuff are completely dominated by overeducated, you know, liberal people who are, you know, I've never met so many hardcore communists than I have in advertising. <laughs> and it's all really, really rich people who are, you know, make tons of money. These these hype dad type people who are like dedicated communists, the DSA people, you know, really uh, excited about the death of global capitalism, you know, even though they are literally like making global capitalism. So there's this weird hypocrisy. I mean, I think. So, so you know, let, let, let me say, let me say this. I, I don't think. I think it's a market calculation for them. Now, does it does it make sense? Do I agree with that logic? Is it really going to make them more money? I don't think so. But that is the belief that has infected so many minds. That's what I'm saying. I don't think it's that... Not, it's not. I, I wish that that was true. And, and so many people say this. But if that were true, right? If what you're saying is true, you wouldn't see the exact same woke takeover of every Netflix movie, of every Hollywood movie, of every sports sports event, of the tennis, you know, every single one of these uh, companies, every single one of these sports, they're all making the exact same decision. At the same time, Hollywood is making the decision. It's not like one, if you were, if it, certainly, if there was a market ca- calculation, one major company would sit down and they would say, well, Every other major company is going after the left. So why don't we go after the right? But none of them are doing that. Not one big giant you know, corporation is doing that. So it's not a it's not a capitalist thing. They're they're not trying to like capture the, you know, the women of Brooklyn. You know what I mean? Like the, the women of Brooklyn don't watch football. Yeah. I, I just I would push back on that some. I mean, like I remember Oh, this was something that I covered for the Red Eye. I remember when I was a sports columnist there, NASCAR reached out and NASCAR saw declining ratings and they're like, um, we don't, we're not really going after city people. So we're going to try. And they, they, they sent a limo out to pick me up from downtown Chicago and bring me all the way out to, you know, past Juliet an hour and 15 minutes away and they tried to do things to try to attract an urban market and it was I think kind of stupid um, but it was something that that these marketing uh, executives had told themselves that we we have to find some group of people that isn't watching NASCAR and 
you know, they also uh, hired some people to make a look. Uh-oh, you froze. Latino watching NASCAR. I'm not saying that it was smart or effective, but that was the idea. No, look, so, there's, there's always campaigns to try and attract new people to a given sport, right? That, mm-hmm. That's always the case. But that's yeah. not why the NFL is out there saying football is gay. They're not, like, trying to attract the gay population. You know, like that. that well, not they're not attracting the gay population, but they're attracting the population that uh, thinks talking. You know, ex- acceptance of of gay people is like a, a paramount um, thing to proclaim, like virtue signaling people. Yeah, they want to get those people. Look at what happened with Top Gun, right? It, they, they don't. There is no economic gen- genuine. And look, I've been in these companies. Nobody is sitting there. I've been in a million of these meetings. Nobody is sitting there saying, look, here's the numbers. We need to really completely alienate every single Trump supporter, which is hundreds of millions of people, and simultaneously alienate all of those people and go after this effete liberal audience. Like nobody's actually saying that inside these companies. And I think that if it was, again, if it genuinely was a economic calculation, you would have companies taking all kinds of different approaches. But they're, every single global corporation is taking the same exact approach. They're all waving the rainbow flag. They're all saying gay stuff. They're all marching leftward endlessly, right? So... Well, I, I just, they're marching left endlessly on culture war issues. Only on culture stuff, exactly. Only, while simultaneously marching totally rightward on economics, as you pointed yeah. out so well, right? And so I yeah. think that that's, it's just divide and conquer, you know? I mean, it's, there, there's a few things going on. What, one thing is uh, truly the people making these things are have been very strangely warped and they, they're like super overeducated. And I think they do. It's, have, it's social media. Yeah. It's I think social media, media is a huge part of it. I think they do have a little bit of what you're talking about of like, they're kind of true believers and they're yeah. people who have gone up the ranks because they're true believers. But what I see inside these companies is their target, the target of a global corporation now, isn't really the customer. There's all these new ways for them to make money, right? And really the best way for them to make money is to get access to large pools of taxpayer money, like over the top, right? So they work with like development banks. They work with uh, basically governments to get access to all this taxpayer money. And they know that in order to get access to all that taxpayer money, because we have this kind of global banking elite, they have to, like, the instructions to signal this ultra-left gay rainbow flag thing, that's kind of like coming down from on high. And these people are kind of yes-men, they're true believers, they're really susceptible to wanting to believe in something anyway, so they just crank this stuff out, you know, all day. Yeah, I mean... All right, I'll give you an example of some woke washing that I was uh, myself a part of. Yeah. So last summer, I did some freelance work for a PR company that worked with Pfizer. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, you know, um, Pfizer, like all these other corporations are like, okay, people uh, care about Juneteenth. And um, they care about, you know, us reaching out to people of color. So the agency I was working for was helmed by uh, a black woman. And the advisor came along to her and said, hey, hey uh, you're, you're a black woman. Here, do, do black stuff. Do, yeah. <laughs> help us do black stuff. You're black. You know what to do. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yep, yep. So, and they, and they gave that to her with, with, you know, just they gave her the keys to the car um, to do uh, social media content on diverse topics. So, I mean, the hilarious thing is she... Uh, pass it on to me, a white guy, and I. <laughs> this is hilarious. I did the Juneteenth post for Pfizer this year. Yeah, yeah, dude. I've been hired as a copywriter to write black people's posts for Black History Month. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we're living in this warped world where all, like, all the black content is being written by you know white copywriters behind the scenes, it, which is hilarious. No, yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I see it all the time. I, I've gotten decks from clients, like mainstream clients have nothing to do with politics. Every single thing about the brand is a woke talking point. But that's how I know it's not an economic calculation. It's not that nobody is inside these companies controlling this thing saying, you know what, we need to go woke because it'll make us money. Because it's not making anybody money. It's it's It doesn't not make the money either. Well... I, I think they're scared of the ramifications of not being a part of it. Um, they're, 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 they're scared of the implications that they could be on the Trump side of the equation and they desperately don't. And so they want to go. Why with- are they scared of that? Why would they be scared of that? Trump, you know, it's a huge, what? like watch what happens in this next election. Are they going to, it's going to be DeSantis supporters. It's going to be whoever, the right side, this white working class, they that is their biggest enemy. They hate them. They hate nationalists, yeah. right? They hate nationalists. They hate these white working class people. The reason why I would argue they hate them is because they're the biggest threat to inevitably pushing off economic reform. You know, it, when white Christian people get together, first of all, as you said, they don't spend a lot of money. Yeah. And then secondly... You know, when they get together and they build and they have a cohesion, they are a massive threat to a global economy that can hire whoever it wants. It can break any union it wants. It can, you know, it hires women. It gets to double its workforce on a global scale. Their biggest fear, fear is like Christian white conservatives who are who are nationalists because nationalism, what happened with Brexit? Nationalism is a threat to their money. You know, if they have to pay tariffs, they have to pay high tariffs to import stuff into the British economy, into the American economy. That costs them a mat. They can't hire Asian slaves. You know, maybe they have to hire people and actually pay them decent amounts of money, right? Well, yeah, although I would argue that... um... Trump's economic nationalism was mostly a lot of tax breaks that um, would convince employers to bring jobs back here. And well, of course, he did China uh, tariffs against China too, but um, it wasn't necessarily to um, it wasn't necessarily to bolster the uh, 
the fortunes of of the everyday worker i would argue well but then why did he do it you know why did he then do those tariffs well i think part of it is you know the conception of national security like if you're if you're uh so there's there's less of a dependence on 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 foreign capital and trade right yeah sure I mean, the, the, like, yeah, all the microchips are made in Taiwan kind of thing. But yeah, no, I mean, I think that there's part of that. But I, but surely um, those were, were good for the American worker, right? I mean, like, surely that pressure, you need to have walls. I mean, I think you need to have walls around your community in order to hope to have any sort of workers' rights at all. Because then otherwise... There's always going to be, you know, if a corporation can access access the absolute bottom of the labor market worldwide, you know, then they just have slaves more or less, which is what they have now. You know, they have they're not actually slaves, but why are there nets on Foxconn? Right. You know, because mm-hmm. because they can do whatever they want with these people. They can totally dominate them in, in every way. So yeah. what? Well, I was just going to say what we're starting to see now with the labor shortage is all of a sudden they're trying to raise the uh, Social Security age and um, in yeah. some states lessen the uh, laws on child labor. Right. Well, and look, what in France, they just raised the retirement age by two years mm-hmm. because they want to do everything they can. And, you know, again, I think this is if you look at feminism, what's so incredible to me about about feminism is, OK, fine. So women didn't you know they were relegated to this role of of female you know the traditional female role for a long time then you know the story goes they didn't want to do that anymore they wanted to be in the workplace right and so we opened it up to allow them to do it even if we accept that even if we accept that that's what happened instead of them you know the powers that be just wanting to double their workforce overnight even if we accept that it was women who made it happen they they asked for it they wanted to do it we have no theory, we have no study, we have no analysis of the economic consequences of doubling the workforce. No one talks about this. No, like no one, there's no field of study that's saying, hey, was it maybe not a good thing to double the workforce overnight with this group that is not really experienced in the workforce? Like, why don't we ever talk about that? Well, I think there are some people, maybe not in those terms, but there's, uh, I think there's a growing awareness of the pressure on parents and um, about child raising in in this age where um, both men and women are expected to be in the workplace. And I, I think COVID uh, offered a sort of uh, a time of reflection about, you know, um, is this working? <laughs> yeah. Because because a lot of people would say that the uh, work at home um, push partly is uh, an attempt to address that. Yeah, is, it, is an attempt to make it a little better for women, more or less. Yes, yeah. that are that are caretakers. Right, right, right. No, I think I think that that's true, and I think there is this pressure that women are realizing. Well, wait a second. 
You know, I mean, Elizabeth Warren, right? She wrote a book on this. She wrote The Two Income Trap. Uh, so yeah. she's certainly a proponent of, of at least having this discussion. But there's mm-hmm. also a reason why they don't let her within, you know, 100 yards of any real power because they, you know, they don't want to have that discussion, you know? Yeah. And, well, you have, um, you know, I know like Andrew Yang uh, has written a good amount about like the crisis of boys and men. He, I think he talks about it some. But yeah, yeah, there's, I mean, there is this cultural fear to like, you know, talk about feminism gone too far or that, you know, um, the marketization of family life is, is, has not been a good thing. I think there, yeah, I think there definitely is, uh, a reluctance to talk about those issues. The marketization of family life is a good, that's exactly kind of what I'm trying to articulate, uh, poorly. I'm, I'm articulating it poorly right now, but, um, yeah, it's like, uh, it's let's make every relationship something we can buy. And I, and I think if you look at their, their strategy, they're most intimidated by relationships they can't buy. You know, anything that is a uh, something that doesn't have a, a market value, uh, they don't like that, you know? Um, okay, so yeah, let's, and I let's, think, oh, sorry, I, no, go ahead. Oh, just to, to get back to the NFL, and I think that's part of what we're seeing with the NFL. And I mean, I know you disagree on these market calculations, but I feel like they are trying to monetize everything together. They, they care about turning a profit and they've been wildly profitable in the last few years. And that just keeps going up. And you have to ask yourself why that is. Yeah, the NFL. Um, yeah, so why is their profit going up? I, I really don't think the answer to it is that they've like gotten new fans i i don't think that they've they've like you know convinced the uh the brooklynites to love football i think well i think think they've gotten they've done it because again these sources of revenue now revenue isn't like companies used to sell products to customers right that was it their job was to sell a widget to a buyer now their job is to diversify their revenue streams in all these crazy ways. Uh, They want subscribers, right? And they also want access to all this really cheap money that like development banks have to do some deal in Mexico, to do some deal in England, you know, where they're, oh, they apply for some grants that gives them like huge access to massive amounts of uh, global banking dollars, more or less. And where do those global banking dollars come from? They come from all kinds of government initiatives that fund these uh, global banks. And what do you see? Google, any global development bank, it's rainbow flags the whole way down. Everything is rainbow flags. So I don't know. It's kind of this party of Davos. You know, it's like this, not to not to go Alex Jones on you, but... Um, it's like there's a. Net- I just think it's. I, I just think it's a soft consensus. I don't think yeah. that there. It's a coordinated effort. I don't think yeah. that George Soros is back there, you know, uh, knighting people with woke values. <laughs> I, I, I think it's just, again, part of a function of the internet, which has a rapidly changed culture, and you have this group of people in academia, media, um, and all of these uh, knowledge jobs believing, you know, the same thing, and so. 
those people get into these positions and they all have this soft consensus. Right. Yeah. I I think that you're, you're right that, I mean, George Soros is definitely behind the scenes doing a lot, right? I mean, he was the number one donor of the entire democratic process, but no, it's not like he's he's completely. And then Sam Bakeman freed, but. Right. And then he was number two. So, you know, uh, but I think, um, I mean, I, yes, I agree with you that it's not, it's not a shady cabal of uh, George Soros and three other guys who are like, you know. That's anti-Semitic. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, yeah. (laughs) Right. Okay. So that's a great, let's, let's finish up with. um, So you wrote another article about another identity politics issue, which was a movie uh, called Actors, which had this guy Peter Vack in it. I think it's not it's not Dasha Nekrasova, but she's involved with these people somehow. It's like this cool New York. She's filming something with them, like a future project with them. And I think she's in that crowd. Yeah, it's all these same people in New York who have created this like slightly alternate economy. And they're all uh, uh, alternate um, art culture economy. And they're making movies... Um, and one of these movies was called Actors, and it was premiering at uh, in an indie theater called The Music Box in Chicago, which I grew up going to. And The Music Box uh, canceled the screening because these people were being accused of being fascist. And the movie was accused of being fascist because it was sort of uh, it's a depiction of a guy who becomes transgender in order to... Um, uh, garner more attention as an actor. So um, I know that, you know, we don't have to get deep into the details of all of this, but what is your opinion generally of like the cancellation of art in these contexts? Well, it's funny because we started out this conversation talking about the reader and in the yeah. past, uh, this sort of transgressive type of art would be something that you would find in the reader because it was part of the counterculture and we're in this weird space where the new counterculture is this kind of thing, this uh, this scene that's doing this um, work that, you know, they say isn't transphobic, but it kind of plays upon um, the way our culture uh, prizes uh, trans voices and, and things like that. So they're kind of, um, you know, shining a sort of lens uh on that idea because yeah it's it's kind of meta because it's about somebody who is like a flailing actor and um pretends to be trans to get attention um so it's 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 kind of ironic you know but uh yeah in this in this uh court sort of panicky environment um anything that isn't preaching just complete you know pro-trans everybody are heroes um you know uh yeah it gets uh banned or canceled or at least accusations of transphobia or fascism well and what they don't like is the idea that being trans is an advantage like it seems like that's what they take the most issue with they don't want the public to think that well i think part of it is that it somehow casts doubt on that that anything that that makes you consider that uh, transphobia could be a performance, even though they're not actually saying that, that is seen as too far. That that to fake it 
like even to discuss it is transphobic not okay yeah like is yeah. that right that undermines the idea that it's you know this totally incontrovertible thing except when it is controvertible which you know we don't even need to get into that but what um what do you think we should yeah so obviously canceling art is bad right you know canceling yeah. art for being being transgressive is ridiculous especially from the left but yet why is this happening why does the music box oh why does every institution always seem to side with the canceller like why who is in control i think that's what's so bewildering is why did the bureaucrats or not bureaucrats whatever the people who run the music box theater theater why do they always uh make the decision on the side of the identity politics people yeah, I mean, for some reason, they're scared of social media mobs. And also the media, I mean, I tried to write a pretty impartial account, but um, they're scared of the media writing that, oh, this transphobic movie appeared at the music box. And suddenly, you know, in their minds, they would get protested by trans people and seen as, uh, you know, uh, not being a trans ally. So there's this sort of... Uh, imagined fear of the bad publicity that happened. They don't want bad publicity. You know, because there's not going to, there's not going to be like uh, a lot of trans doubters uh, that have uh, voices in the mainstream media. So they're not, they're not really scared of them. But say that, okay, so imagine that they were to publish a, or create a very pro-abortion movie, right? That was just like, so so pro-abortion that uh was it a jenny slade movie kind of like that a few years ago yeah i don't know what what was that obvious child or something like that how she was super cool with her abortions so say they were to make that movie yeah no matter how much they got protested by the right they wouldn't care. Yeah. They would view it as, oh, we're transgressive and cool. And this is this is the point of art. Right. They, they would totally say that. So why yeah. is it that they are so completely susceptible to one and completely immune to the other? Well, because in the city of Chicago, uh, you have, what, 92 percent blue voters that, you know, um, think a lot of the same lines and you know we'll look at it the other way around if you're in a a suburban or like small town where there's a church playing a uh uh, the you know uh, passion of the christ or some other christian movie there's sort of this alternative ecosystem of like christian movies these days and you know if you had liberal protesters protesting at that chances are they're not going to care about that they're going to play the movie anyway i think it's just we live in these uh, bubbles of um, liberal or conservative. And so it's just getting more ironclad. Yeah. It's just that the entire establishment, like the people who are actually in power always seem to side with the, the left. And it's like, there's no, what happened with the reader, what happened in every single place. It's like, there's this endless March and it's unstoppable no matter what you do. And it's very weird. Yeah, I, I I can't I can't argue with that. Yeah. 
Um, cool, man. Well, what 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 do you have uh, coming up? What's what what's uh, more come for the compact? Or I know that you're you have a new job in Atlanta. Yeah, I'm writing about democracy in Atlanta um, for the site called Atlanta Civic Circle, and um, yeah, it's such a broad topic. And so, you know, Fulton County and uh, the Atlanta area has been a focus of um, both you know, liberals and conservatives with the election systems. I actually wrote a piece for Compact um, a few months ago in November uh, talking about Stacey Abrams because Stacey Abrams uh, also cast the Georgia electoral system in doubt for different reasons than Trump. But yeah, it's, it's been a, a focal point in elections. In fact, it's still uh, reverberating. Um, there's this uh, city that just voted to incorporate in the Atlanta area called Mableton. Um, to create their own separate city inside the Atlanta city limits. And they haven't even established a city charter yet. And there's already people there saying the election was fake or, or rigged. Hey. Um, and so there's just been a, a, a real trickle down effect of people doubting the elections here. Yeah. So yeah. I'm sort of covering the democracy uh, beat. Uh, I might be writing a little bit about this Mandleton election. Um and uh, with Jimmy Carter on his deathbed, I'm writing a thing about Jimmy Carter. Nice. Yeah. So, the, yeah. A little bit of there's definitely something to the election. So, and do you think that that's coming from both sides now? Like both sides are now like the election's fake. N no, but what happened is it just switched because in 2018, you, um, you had Stacey Abrams saying that the election was rigged in, in favor of Brian oh. Kemp. Yeah. And all these black uh, voters are disenfranchised. And so that election was tainted and that Brian Kemp never really won. Well, two years later, it just reverses itself. And it's the Republicans yeah. who, you know, uh, threw everything into contestation. Well, what are, what, what are the trickle down effects of that? And that's sort of what I'm covering right now. Sounds like a good beat. Yeah. That sounds cool. I mean, it's not especially in where you are, which is such a fraught place. It's like they really care about Georgia for some reason. Like Atlanta, the powers that be really, really care about Georgia. Yeah, Atlanta has sort of become um, one of the centers of the political universe in the last few years. Yeah. I mean, with the Stacey Abrams thing, with the, uh, you know, uh, Warnock and Ossoff election, yeah. And then now the De Democratic Party is talking about moving Georgia up to second in their uh, primary slate. So that that kind of shows you where the balance of power is going. That's so true. Why do they care about Georgia so much? Why do they? It's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know either. It's, a, it's just funny. Yeah, I, mean, it's, there's... I, I think partly because it's seen as like a purple state that's that because, you know, Atlanta has gone so blue in the last 10 years that um and and it's growing here i mean georgia has uh you know a lot of people are are leaving the lib state all of a sudden you know since the pandemic they're leaving new york they're leaving california they're leaving illinois and they're coming to states like florida georgia and texas so it, it's just i mean part of it is just growing in population and power yeah but they think the democrats think that they you know that they can win and, and permanently turn it blue right and it's like a good yeah it's like a target for them very cool. Um, well, dude, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for being uh, willing to being open minded and and talking to me and everything like that. So uh, really appreciate it. And yeah.
Yeah, I I, look, uh, I usually talk to people that pretty much agree with me uh, on on <laughs> most things. So it's uh, cool to have a little debate. Well, I mean, the thing is, you and I probably do agree on almost everything. It's just uh, yeah. we're like a little bit, you know, I, w- I probably agree with you on way more stuff than I agree with like a neocon, for example, definitely more, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think we're probably you know kind of two sides of the same coin i think i just um yeah i don't know i've just like gone you're away. racist uh, yeah i'm just racist no uh i well, i get in trouble for not being racist enough believe it or not um yeah so, no I, I again like anyway you can hear my thoughts on that on other podcasts but uh okay man thank you so much really appreciate it All right. Take care, Isaac.